part of the war by subscribing to government loans. The Whigs, on the other hand, though banished from office, were ardent advocates of the greatest military efforts. They supported Marlborough. This clash of opinion governed the politics of the reign. There was a religious complication. Queen Anne, Marlborough, and Godolphin were all Tories, born and bred, and all were Anglicans. Anne had long ago abandoned the conviction that her father's son, the exiled Prince of Wales, was not her brother. At the time of his birth, there was a rumour that the prince wasn't actually the son of James and his wife Mary of Medina, that he had been smuggled into the palace in a warming pan simply as a ploy to guarantee the Catholic succession to the throne. Anne no longer believed this story, if ever she had. But, having lived through one rebellion, indeed having taken part in it at her own father's expense, it would not have been at all inconceivable to Anne that there might be another rebellion in England. The prince lived under French protection. He is known to British history as the Old Pretender, but more gallantly in French annals as the Chevalier of St. George. Queen Anne felt herself in her most inner conscience a usurper and she was also gnawed by the feeling that she had treated her dead father ill. Her one justification against these self-questionings was her absolute faith in the Church of England. It was her duty to guard and cherish at all costs this sacred institution, the maintenance of which was bound up with her own title and the peace of her realm. But of more immediate concern was the effort needed for the war in Europe. In 1702, Louis believed that the death of King William, his one-time enemy, had weakened the English resolve to join the Grand Alliance against him. He counted upon a period of hesitation and loss of contact, which, if turned to good account by military action, might break the Dutch and scare off the English. He regarded Marlborough as a favoured court personage, able, no doubt, and busy with intrigue, but owing his influence entirely to the Queen's affection for his wife. The French High Command, therefore, did not hesitate to place their main army, as soon as the campaign season began, within twenty miles of Nimwegen. In May, Marlborough made for Nimwegen. He found widespread despondency among Allied troops and jealousy among the generals. But when his hand was felt upon the army and its operations— A different mood prevailed. In a brilliant campaign, the new captain-general conquered all the fortresses of the Meuse, and thus the whole river channel was freed. When Marlborough returned to The Hague, he was received with intense public joy by the Dutch, and on his arrival in England he was created Duke by the Queen. In his very first year, the tide of the war was set flowing in the opposite direction, and the whole alliance which had seemed about to collapse, was knit together by new bonds of constancy and hope. Marlborough is commanding the alliance of the Dutch Republic, the Holy Roman Empire, and the British. Later, the Portuguese and the Germans will join the alliance. Actually, German states would be a better description. There wasn't a Germany as we know it today. They are all fighting the French. It's the war of the Spanish succession, an attempt to stop the power balance in Europe, swinging either to Louis XIV of France or to Emperor Leopold of Austria. But England also fought against the French because Louis might have invaded England, given the opportunity, in support of the Catholic Jacobite claim to the throne. So, it's 1703, incidentally the year Samuel Pepys died, 
and in spite of initial success, the alliance is losing ground to the French. Both at home and abroad, the fortunes of the Grand Allies sank to a low ebb in the winter of 1703. Marlborough, during the winter months, planned the supreme stroke of strategy which turned the whole fortune of the war. But before he could proceed to the continent, it was essential to reconstitute the government of the High Tories. Rochester was already dismissed, and Nottingham was soon to go. A new figure was required to fill the void. Robert Harley, so active in reducing the armed forces and opposing King William's foreign policy, had been Speaker, leader of the moderate Tories, and virtually leader of the House of Commons. He was now invited to become Secretary of State, and the inner circle of the government was widened to admit him. The combination became Marlborough, Godolphin, and Harley with the Queen.